It is good to be together in worship. My name is Kurt. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to add my welcome to you this morning. We love worshiping with our kids, but we also want to send them out now to the time of kids' worship with God's blessing. And so as they go, we pray that God would be with them and that they would be able to enjoy their time of being together. Of course, they'll come back at the end of the service. Uh, for those of you parents who would like your kids to participate in communion, you can invite them to come and participate this morning. Uh, we will leave that up to you. Uh, I want to take a little bit of time as kind of an intro to the message today to give kind of a quick roadmap of where we're heading as we approach Holy Week and Easter Sunday and beyond. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he was often followed by large crowds of people, and it was most often in these public contexts with lots of people around asking him questions that the key question came up that I want to suggest is one of the key questions for us in this Easter holy season. Uh, who is this guy? Who is Jesus? And the question of Jesus' identity becomes increasingly important as he approaches Jerusalem and he prepares for his ultimate act of service on behalf of humanity to, to give his life on the cross for the sin of the world. And as we approach Easter Sunday this year and the reality of Jesus' death and resurrection, we continue to wrestle, I want to suggest for us today and in the days ahead, with this question, who is Jesus? To you. Each of our four gospel accounts in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, talk about his life, his birth, and his ministry, his teaching, his death, and ultimately his resurrection as a way to, to help us answer this key question. That's why the gospels were written, to answer the question, who is Jesus? The answer to this question is important because it has direct implications for each of our own lives as followers of Jesus. How we choose to answer that question for ourselves leads us to the next step questions that we also need to be asking, what did Jesus come to do and how can I follow him as a result of what he's revealed? And so as a preparation for Easter, we're going to begin exploring this first question today. And then next week, we're going to take a pause because our own uh, regional conference ministry coach, Peter Sung, is going to be here as a guest speaker. Uh, Greg and I uh, and our sons are going to be going to the men's retreat at Cascades. It was kind of not well announced, so if you didn't hear about it, uh, I apologize that uh, you maybe haven't had the opportunity. It might not be too late to sign up. So uh, it is next weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Sunday. If you're interested, talk to me after the service and we'll see if maybe we can get you signed up to join us. But Peter Sung is going to come and he's going to uh, bring a great message for us. He always does a great job. And then on Palm Sunday, which is the Sunday of our combined service, we're going to walk with Jesus through the triumphal entry and the experiences around that day in his life. And of course, we'll gather on Thursday evening, on Monday, Thursday at 6.30, and then at 10 o'clock on Sunday. And on that Sunday, we're going to kick off a whole new series where we're going to start a study through the parables of Jesus. And as we look through the parables of Jesus, we're going to be asking the question, how can we be followers of this Jesus who came, who taught, who died, and who lives again? 
And in response to his teaching and the stories that he tells through the parables, we're going to be looking at a companion book called Christ-Shaped Character, Choosing Love, Faith, and Hope, which is written by a woman named Helen Shapiro. She's a covenant pastor. She's a spiritual director, and she's an adjunct professor at North Park Seminary. Now, the series isn't based on this book. This is the companion that can help us find ways that we might find application of Jesus' parables into our personal lives and into our lives as a church as we seek to follow him. She talks in the book about nine different pathways that are based on scripture of how we can connect with God in ways that Christ's character begins to be formed in us. So this is a great opportunity for you to read on your own. If you're in a disciple group or a small group, you guys might want to consider doing that together. Uh, If you would like to connect with a friend and invite them to do it, there's these wonderful practices that we can be uh, participating in together. And uh, we don't have details yet, but there's going to be a 50-day challenge starting after Easter, because there's 50 days between Easter and Pentecost, where we're going to be invited to go deeper into our walk with Jesus. So look for more information about that. And as Cindy said, it'd be a great time to invite somebody to come to church on Easter Sunday to get in on the ground floor of this new series. As we look into the story of Jesus today, we begin to realize that not everyone was always completely sure that Jesus was someone you could trust. In fact, many people thought that Jesus may have been a little bit off his rocker. We're not the first ones to have to wrestle with the question of Jesus' identity. In fact, what we will see today as we look into the gospel of Mark chapter 3, that his own family questioned his mental faculties, and his religious peers thought he was severely twisted. Let's jump into the story real quick, and then I want to pray one more time for our message. Our passage today comes from Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 20. It says, Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. Can you imagine the crowd being so huge and raucous that you didn't even have time to sit down and eat a meal? You ever been there where you're hungry and you're tired and you're lonely and and you just can't find that time to rest? Jesus knows what you're going through. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. You ever have your family think you're out of your mind and treat you like you're crazy? Jesus knows what you're going through. The teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem, the, 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 the professional religious people, right, came and said, he's possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons he's driving, driving out demons. You're not good, Jesus, you're evil. Anybody ever accuse you of not being good, being a bad person? Jesus knows what you're going through. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, the house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. Yikes. (laughs) Those are strong words. 
He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and brothers, Jesus asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Would you pray with me real quick? God, we thank you for the word that you have given us for the teaching of Jesus. As we prepare our hearts for Easter and we prepare for a new series where we walk through the parables that Jesus taught, speak to us through your spirit those words that we need to hear. Remind us of the importance of the question for each of us today and in this Easter season, who is Jesus to me? And God, as we go from here today, we pray that you will take the seeds that have been planted in our hearts and in our minds and that you will water them and that you will bring a flourishing and a fruitful response this week as we apply this word to our lives in ways that lead us to be true disciples of Jesus as we follow him and seek to put his teaching into practice in our lives. And we will thank you and praise you for the ways you bless us and lead us and guide us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's work through this story just a little bit. These masses of people that thronged to Jesus were a continual challenge that he had to deal with. They came from everywhere, people hoping to catch a glimpse of him from the top of a tree, people trying to get their friends to him by by digging a hole in through a roof and dropping him on top of his head, people who came to hear him speak or, or who pressed in so close so they could just touch the hem of his garments. And we see that Jesus not only attracted the attention of all these people who are, who are looking to, to see a miracle or, or to be healed or to, to hear his teaching, but, but, but he, he also had the attention of these religious people who heard the reports of his miracles and his ability to drive out evil spirits and the authority of his teaching that people were responding to. And so they've come out from Jerusalem, they've left the temple, and they've come into the countryside so that they can start an investigation and they can observe what he's doing. And and we know that they've already begun to plot behind the scenes to undo him. Can you imagine the intensity of living with these kinds of crowds that incorporated all of these people who were watching your every move and criticizing your every word and hoping to get something from you, but nobody was there to have anything for you? So much so that it says that disciples and him didn't even have a time to to eat and to rest. The people couldn't even pause for a minute to go, oh, no, no, Jesus, go ahead and eat your meal first, and then we'll have our meeting. (laughs) No, we need you now. Of course, news of all this commotion had also reached his family in Nazareth. Right, His mother and his brothers are uh, disturbed by what they're hearing. And they believe he's somehow begun to lose it. Maybe he's gotten in over his head. Maybe the stress of all this public notoriety is starting to to create cracks in his his emotions, in his mind. Literally, it says he's beside himself. He's outside of himself. 
You know, Jesus, your, your health is at risk. You gotta, you gotta slow down. You gotta take a break. Do you understand that all this stuff that you're doing is gaining the attention of the religious leaders and they're not in your favor. They're out to kill you. Jesus, you're putting your life at risk by what you're doing. So out of love and concern for their son and their brother, and perhaps maybe, maybe just try and spare their own family's reputation, you know, back home at school, the kids are like, is that your uncle, Jesus? <laughs> He's nuts. <laughs> so they've decided to go and, and restrain him, to, to, to capture him and to pull him back and to, to help him, right? How many of you have an extended family member that you ever wish you could just tie up and hide away in a closet sometimes? One story is told about the Smith family. The Smiths were a proud family, and they were proud of their American tradition. Their ancestors had come on the Mayflower. Their line included senators and pastors and Wall Street wizards, and now they had decided to compile a family history as a legacy to pass on to their children. So they hire a well-known author to help them write their family story. Only one problem remained, and that was how to handle the story of great uncle George who had been electrocuted in the electric chair. But the author said, oh, no, no, don't worry about it. He could handle that section of historical, you know, with historical accuracy and do it tactfully. So when the book appeared, the family turned to the section on uncle George and they read, George Smith occupied a chair of applied electronics. and an important government institution. He was attached to his position by the strongest of ties, and his death came as a real shock. <laughs> Do you ever have those family members, those family experiences that you wish you could kind of rewrite their history, you could change the story, you could put a nice spin on it so it didn't sound so awful, painful, weird, ugly, bad. I know I do. And Jesus' family weren't the only ones who wanted to restrain him and put him in a closet. Because before they arrived from Nazareth, Mark tells us that these religious leaders were attempting to discredit him. These professional, you know, maybe pastors of the time are there to, 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 to help the people kind of overcome this fascination they have with this popular Jesus because they said it's not just that he's crazy. They go even one step further and say he's possessed by the devil. It's by the power of Beelzebul, they claim, that he's able to cast out demons. Beelzebul literally means the Lord of the house. And apparently it was a colloquialism to describe Satan, the prince of demons, who was kind of considered the Lord of the underworld. We might think of it as the mafia boss of hell, <laughs> right? He's the one in charge who gives all the demons their marching orders and tells them what to do. And, and, and there's no positive compassion attributed to Jesus' actions or his teaching. There's no divine mercy that they see in what he's doing and what he's providing to help people. He was assumed to be either intentionally hoodwinking people into getting, gaining more attention and popularity or power for himself, or else, at worst, he was doing the bidding of Satan. Now, it's interesting, they're not denying that he has demonstrated real supernatural power. Right? They're not saying that, that, that what is happening isn't real. 
What they're doing is that they're acknowledging he has power, but, but rather than attributing the power to God, they're attributing it to the devil to undercut his authority and his power to win the people. And so Jesus, as usual, rebuffs their accusations by creating a teachable moment. <laughs> he demonstrates that their accusation, for their accusation to be true, it would necessarily be a sign of civil war in the underworld. Moreover, since Jesus' works brought healing and restored wholeness to people and not harm, it would make no sense for a malignant power like Satan to cooperate in widespread acts of mercy and kindness. It just doesn't compute, Jesus says. In fact, these acts of mercy that Jesus has been doing are the very things that the Bible has predicted would be the signs of the breaking in of the kingdom of God into the world. The term strong man could also be interpreted armed man. And Jesus is saying that in order to plunder the house of a heavily armed man, you first have to overwhelm him and tie him up. If you can do that, then you've got free run of the house, right? You can take all the time you want to, to plunder everything that you can. So an armed man could only be defeated by someone who is stronger, more heavily armed, better equipped, and able to overpower and subdue him. And so what in fact they are witnessing, therefore, Jesus is saying, is not a sign of civil war in hell, but a direct onslaught against the powers of evil that are at work in this world from heaven itself. That a stronger man has arrived on the scene and his power is loose in the world to overcome the very power of sin and evil that leads to brokenness and oppression and pain and suffering. And that the very signs that Jesus came to perform, the healing and the miracles and the teachings, were to lead us back to an experience of wholeness and restoration and renewal in our relationship with the creator God of heaven. A power stronger than the godfather of evil is at work, and the truth is being evidenced in that Jesus is plundering his house. Jesus is the stronger man who's bringing the power of God into the world. And men and women, Jesus is still that stronger man who wants to bring the power of heaven into your life and into my life in ways that lead us to healing and restoration and renewal of our relationship with God. And what better season to begin to prepare our hearts and minds to consider who Jesus is to you and to me than in this season of Easter. This is the context for Jesus' words in verses 28 to 30 that I just want to take a couple minutes to work through because I think it's important to understand what Jesus is talking about here. Again, he says, Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. Again, that's the one unforgivable sin that we find in the Bible, right? And, and people often wonder, how do I know if I've committed the unforgivable sin? And how do I know if I'm going to make it to heaven? And I just want to put your mind at ease to help you understand what Jesus is saying here, the, the unforgivable sin really is. Verse 30 says, he said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. So to take Jesus' words and actions and attribute them to the manifestation of evil and to say that Jesus is the devil incarnate is to attribute the power of God and the working of his spirit to the devil himself. It's mistaking God's kingdom for a kingdom of evil. 
And in taking this step, they had crossed into a danger zone from which Jesus said they might not return. Blasphemy in this situation is not a one-time momentary act of sin. It's a kind of spiritual attitude. It's a spiritual blindness that can take over our hearts and our lives that leaves us incapable of the one conditionary condition that's necessary for forgiveness, and that's repentance. Throughout the Bible, this condition has been described as a hardness of heart. It's a resistance to the mercy and the grace of God that claims that we don't need that in our life. We've got this all figured out, and we can make it on our own strength. And ultimately, it really says more about us as human beings than it says about God. Jesus is very clear that God's grace is available to all people and all our sins can be forgiven. But God never forces himself on anyone. And so the only unforgivable sin is for you to reject God. It's our hardness of heart that can lead us to reject the testimony of God's Spirit and the signs and the evidence that Jesus came to perform, the the messages that he taught, and to misunderstand God's gracious attempt to redeem our lives in the story of Easter and to refuse to acknowledge that this good news message is that Jesus is indeed God come in the flesh. See, the Spirit of God, the Bible says, is given to give testimony to who Jesus is, that He is the Lord, He is the Messiah, He is God with us, Emmanuel. To reject the Spirit's witness is to reject not only the means of God's forgiveness, but our assumption that we even need forgiveness in the first place. Jesus is saying that there can be a level of resistance in our own lives, that that our hearts can become so numb and so calloused and and, and so confused that, that it's impossible for us to be willing to not only just ask for forgiveness, but to even believe that we need forgiveness in the beginning. And so the unforgivable sin really then is to think that we no longer need God and attribute the work of God to evil. And isn't that what we see happening over and over again in our world and our society today? That somehow Christianity has become the evil that needs to be overcome. And how great has the enemy twisted the hearts and the minds of a culture to think that the very answer to the redemption of the world is a thing that we need to reject. Now we can choose to dismiss Jesus as nutty (laughs) or as twisted, but he simply asks us to count the cost of that decision. It's kind of ironic, isn't it, that the one who came to restore order and sanity and wholeness to a broken and evil world was ridiculed and judged to be evil and insane? Isn't it kind of odd that that the one who came to rescue us is the one who his family thought needed to be rescued? Because that's then his family arrives with the men in white coats. They're coming to take me away, ha ha. Right? I'm sure his family's actions were motivated by love and concern, but they no less sought to undermine the Spirit's work through Jesus. How many of you have a loved one in your life that is very loved and concerned about you, but is somehow undercutting the Spirit's work in your life and is pulling you away from what God's best is for your life? Or maybe it's a friend 
or somebody that you go to school with. Maybe it's somebody who, who is close to you and you know that they care about you, but somehow they just don't understand this good news message and so they're, they're not helping you to follow Jesus. They're actually pulling you away from Jesus' influence in your life. Perhaps we too in this season need to hear the echo of Jesus' words through the centuries, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And that might be a house like a house of worship at Faith Covenant Church, or, or it might be your own spiritual house, and you're divided in your own heart between your allegiance to, to, to your friends or to your family or to the world and what God is calling you to know and to understand and to do as a follower of Jesus. Because even those in Jesus' own family we see can unwittingly become an obstacle to the work of God's Spirit in our lives. Thus, even for those of us who claim to be a part of God's family, to be followers of Jesus today, it's important that we understand the difference of what it means to be for Jesus and what it means to be with Jesus. Those who Jesus identifies in this passage as his real family are those who are with him. Those who have joined him in the work of God's kingdom, those who are sitting at his feet, learning from his teaching and going out and applying that teaching in their lives so they're all part of the mission of love that he came in God's name to bring to a lost and a hurting world. During World War II, apparently there's a story of a company of American soldiers that was marching through France when a, a little old lady approached them with a broom over her shoulder and began marching with them. And they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> kind of in a smiling way, like, hey, you can't do that. <laughs> you, there's nothing you can do with a broom, right? And she says, but I can at least sure let people know whose side I'm on. Or another way to express the idea of being for or with someone might be the way we talk about uh, involvement versus commitment. Right? Those are two different words that we use, like bacon and eggs. It's a great combo, right? With bacon and eggs, you could say that the hen is involved, but the pig is committed. <laughs> and don't we use these terms in our own relationships as well? If you ask a person if they're involved with anyone, it can have a very different connotation than you ask if they're committed to anyone. See, to be for someone is to be in favor of them. Oh, sure, I'm in favor of Jesus. <laughs> but to be with someone is to be willing to join them. It's a very different thing to say, I am with you, Jesus. I'm with you in your work. I'm with you in your mission. I'm following your teaching. I'm willing to treat you as the Lord and master of my life. I'm willing to take up my cross and to follow you, to understand that you are the only one who has the words of eternal life. This was the topic of a book written by Kyle Eidelman in 2011. You may have read it. It's called Not a Fan in which he says, like a sports fan that wants to cheer on his or her team from the sidelines, a fan is simply an enthusiastic admirer. Fans want to be close enough to Jesus to get all the benefits, but not so close that it requires any sacrifice, while followers are all in and completely committed to Jesus. Do you want to be more than a fan? 
Are you an admirer of Jesus this morning? Are you for church? I'm for church. But I think the deeper question that Jesus has for us is, are we with Jesus? And do we understand that to be a part of a faith community calls a church means that we are with one another in the work of God's kingdom that he's called all of us to do? Maybe this Easter it's time for you and for me once again to define the relationship with Jesus. Jesus says there's a unique spiritual bond that grows between those who become co-laborers with Jesus in God's kingdom. We know that the Bible tells us, going back to Christmas, right, that Jesus is Emmanuel. Jesus is God with us. That God has taken the first step. He's made the first move. He has come to join us in the brokenness and the pain and the suffering of our life. And as a response, he's opened the door through Jesus' death and resurrection so that we can be free to come and be with Jesus. We understand that in Jesus, God is demonstrating his love for us. God is providing his healing and his forgiveness for us. God is driving the evil away from us. God is reconciling us to himself and to one another. In Jesus, God is creating a whole new people, a new society. He's introducing a new lifestyle that is expressed in a new experience of what family is all about. And many of us come from family experiences that have been less than stellar. And Jesus says, that's okay, because real family is about those who join with me and experience what family is supposed to be like. Church in this understanding is not something that we attend or that we are involved in or something that we simply are in favor of, where we come and we cheer on Sunday mornings and we wear our, our, our jerseys and we go home and we, we have all of our, our, our banners on the wall and our Christian paraphernalia and our bumper stickers on the car, but we never take time to talk to Jesus or to be with Jesus or to step out in response to God's call and serve Jesus in any specific or practical way. Are we really with Jesus or are we just enthusiastic admirers? Of course, if you really step out to follow Jesus, you may have some family members or friends that think you've got a screw loose. <laughs> Or you can experience people outside the church that think we've given ourselves over to one of the great evils in society today. But for those who respond to the call of Jesus to follow me, a whole new world opens up, Jesus says, and a spiritual reality begins to unfold of a loving God who has given his life so that we might see and believe that he wants us to be with him. And that those who respond to Jesus in this way begin to exhibit the very presence and the power of the Spirit of God to not only walk in the way that Jesus walked, but to do the things that Jesus did. So our kids are coming back, and as we wrap up today, who is Jesus to you today? Who is Jesus to you in this Easter season? As we approach Easter and the final events of Jesus' earthly life and ministry, and the direction to which his life is pointing us, we might ask ourselves, is Jesus someone worthy of your commitment or recommitment again in this season? Is Jesus who he claims to be in your life, or is he somehow out of touch with your personal experience and reality?
Because the good news message is that Jesus is not only worthy of your commitment, but he is able more than any other strong man to deal with your burdens and your worries and your fears and your brokenness, to lead you to health and wholeness and restore joy and passion in your relationship with God. And in that process, he calls us to be with one another and to encourage one another on this journey. So that's going to be our invitation in this season. In a few minutes, we'll be invited to come and demonstrate that desire to be with Jesus through the experience of Holy Communion. But I invite you to join us uh, Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday as we continue to ask the question, what did Jesus come to do? And as a result of who Jesus is and what he came to do, how can we then, as we begin to study the teachings of Jesus through the parables, follow him as his true disciples? Would you pray with me? God, we thank you that you have called us to be your family. And that even though we and you have experienced the brokenness of earthly families, you invite us to see that as we become more than a fan of Jesus and we are invited to be with Jesus, you want to open up a whole new experience of joy and passion and excitement in our journey with you. And so as we open ourselves for the Spirit of Christ to be formed in us and for us to to, to experience what it means to grow in a Christ-like character, God, we ask that you would give us the courage and the strength to respond to this invitation from your word and to lean into one another as a faith community in the season ahead. And we will praise you for all the ways that you bless us, forgive us, and heal us in Jesus' name. Yes, God. Amen.